Um, so I think, I think we'll start. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Carl Siegel from the Freud Museum, and um, very pleased to, to welcome you all to today's uh, conference, symposium, seminar. I'm not sure what, what we're calling it yet. Discussion, uh, I'm sure it'll become clear during the course yeah. of the day. Uh, no, it's going to be a fascinating day. Um, and... Um, those of you who may not have been to events at the Freud Museum before, um, this is one of a, a serious week of uh, conferences that we organise throughout the year. Um, and today's conference is organised with Alistair Hopwood and the Fourth Memory Archive um, and complements an exhibition which Alistair has mounted at the Freud Museum. Um, and again, those of you who haven't actually been to the museum, in the lunch break, you probably already found out that your ticket for today is that you had um, free entry into the museum, and I would urge you to go and look at um, the exhibition that is currently on. It very much complements what's being discussed today, and if you haven't been to the museum before, I hope you'll be interested in, in our collections. And indeed, if you've enjoyed or do enjoy today's event, please put yourself on our mailing list or even better, become um, a member. Um, a couple, I think, just of sort of housekeeping um, things. Because the acoustics in this room are generally pretty good, um, we're actually not miking the speakers. Um, but if you do have any problems hearing, let us know, because we could put mics on if yeah. that was really causing a problem to anyone. And another point on that, um, today's uh, proceedings are being recorded. So after each session, when there are questions, there will be um, a roving microphone going around, just so that your questions then get recorded and, and form part of the day's uh, proceedings, which you'll then be able to listen to online. Um, so now I think just to, to welcome, Alistair is going to be in charge of the day. It's a fascinating topic and it's a great collection of speakers lined up. Um, and I'm sure it will provoke a great deal of discussion and debate. Um, and I will now hand over to Alistair to start the day's proceedings. Thanks, Thank, Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, I'd like to extend a welcome to you all as well. It's great to have so many of you here. Um, can everyone hear me okay at the back? Okay, great. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited and uh, honoured to, to welcome you today to the, to the final False Memory Archive event um, on this exhibition and events tour, which has gone around the, the country. Um, as Carol has said, we're fortunate enough to have uh, some fantastic speakers today who have international reputations in memory research, and I hope you agree that it promises to be a fascinating and provocative series of lectures today, and I look forward to discussing the key issues with you throughout the day. So, as Carol said, I'm Alistair, um, or A.R. Hopwood. Uh, I'm an artist, and in the past I've worked regularly under the public pseudonym The With Collective, and since 2012 I've been making work as the False Memory Archive. Now, as With, I made a number of projects with a variety of galleries, including Tate Britain, the ICA, Hayward Gallery, Chapter, the Victorian Albert Museum, and as the False Memory Archive, I've been engaged over the last two years on a national exhibition and an event series uh, with a number of partners, including Talbot Rice in Edinburgh, the Mead Gallery in Coventry, the Exchange in Penzance, Carol Fletcher Project Space in uh, Mayfair in London, and of course, 
at the Freud Museum in London. So how did I get to this point? In November 2011, I was fortunate enough to be given the opportunity by the Wellcome Trust to do a residency at Professor Christopher French's Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths College. And that was in order to develop a new body of work in response to research relating to the phenomenon of false memory. So it's probably really useful at this point, just to refresh people's memories, to start off with a definition of false memory. Now, there's no one single agreed definition, but I think that this uh, single sentence is quite a useful starting point. So, a false memory is a distorted or entirely invented <coughs> recollection of an experience. Now, for a slightly lengthier definition, it's perhaps useful to turn to the excellent book, The Science of False Memory, by Charles Brainyard and Valerie Rayner, which states that a false memory refers to circumstances in which we are possessed of positive, definite memories of events, although the degree of definiteness may vary, that did not actually happen to us. So how and why, as an artist, did I arrive at an interest in false memory? The possibility that someone could believe in an entirely imagined experience was an idea that I've explored satirically since 2002 in my work as the With Collective, where I've created a range of 60 concepts at the website withyou.co.uk. These concepts, or rather solutions as With described them, are the primary manifestation of the work, and the theme that links all of the ideas together is the notion that someone can have an experience either invented or lived out on their behalf by a member of the collective. As art critic J.J. Charlesworth explained in his 2010 essay, Memories, we're talking about memories, with solutions take the intervention of the self-help book and life coach to an absurd extreme, satirising contemporary culture's fascination with lifestyle choice and personal development. If you can have plastic surgery to change the bits of your body you don't like, with solutions allow us to outsource the darker, less appealing aspects of our inner lives. So what kind of solutions do the With Collective offer to the public on the, um, on the website? So here we have, we have Trauma Former, which I'll just read out for you. In Trauma Former, we'll construct for, you, construct for you a new and more traumatic past. You can choose from a variety of scenarios, including untimely deaths, destructive childhood experiences, former addictions and failed careers. Selected evidence from your new experiences will be framed and mounted for your pleasure. <laughs> In Anomalastic, we'll contact you if you die. We'll use all contemporary and traditional forms of communication and won't stop until we get a satisfactory reply. <laughs> Whether for work or personal reasons, Anomalastic is the perfect way to maintain relationships in the most difficult circumstances. All communications will be archived in an attractive manner and presented to your friends and family in a wooden box. <laughs> and then just the last example is Homoflexible. In Homoflexible, we are alternate sexual self. We'll experiment with a variety of sexual preferences on your behalf. Opposite sex, same sex, fetish group, voyeur or exhibitionist will perform your fantasy stroke fears for you as you so you don't have to. <laughs> So throughout its quasi-fictional existence, the With Collective has spent the last ten years living out a number of experiences on behalf of a variety of clients, both real and imagined, including committing a crime, uh, doing 
nothing on a gallery director's behalf for the duration of a five-week exhibition. We've also exercised on behalf of members of the public. <laughs> We've travelled around the world for 30 years on someone's behalf, and here are the archival slides to prove it. We've accidentally broken a glass on behalf of 50 clients. We've gone to war in someone's name. We've woken up on behalf of 250 people during a six-week exhibition. Perhaps more worryingly, we've died on behalf of three different clients. And also, we've accidentally damaged a limited edition artwork for 500 people for £50. We've also generated evidence of imagined experiences to prove that something had happened to a client when in reality it hadn't, including seeing a miracle, uh, being responsible for destroying capitalism, uh, <laughs> missing uh, hundreds of meetings on their behalf, and finally, um, creating proof of an imagined trauma as in the trauma former product, as part of a fictional TV makeover show based in Australia called Redesign Your Life Down Under. And here's a, a short clip from the programme that shows the with client who's received the trauma former talking about his post-product experiences. Any second now. I mean, basically, after after the experience and, and uh, you know, everything that I, I went through, it totally made me reevaluate re the uh, the priorities in my life, and so I decided to quit my job uh, in order to try and find something to do that would enable me to put something back into society, you know, back into the community. And I realised that I could utilise the talents I had from my youth by building up a career as a rugby coach and helping the victims of the porn industry, which, of course, ultimately claimed, you know, my wife. to comment on the value and efficacy of the artist and issues relating to labour, exchange and collaboration. 
More pertinently, pertinently, though, the project has continually explored how our sense of self and our identities are susceptible to manipulation, distortion and delusion. And it's specifically this area of interest that led me into this new body of work, into false memory. The speculative and absurdist notion proffered throughout the WITH project that a false experience can be believed in as being real was thus the point of departure for my work on false memory and my residency at the APRU. Since then, my research into this fascinating area of scientific inquiry, my relationship with Chris French, my various visits and meetings with experimental psychologists and neuroscientists in the UK and US, has led to the development of the False Memory Archive, a project which is made up of two separate and yet interrelated strands. Now, the first element of the project is a series of new artworks made in response to research into false memory and in direct collaboration with a variety of groups and individuals, which can be seen at the galleries here at the Freud Museum and also at Carol Fletcher Project Space in Ridinghouse Street. Works that have toured around the country uh, in each exhibition include a collaboration with a fictional security guard who's erased all evidence of adults from a number of security camera stills to the best of his ability. A series of photographs and videos made with Professor Elizabeth Loftus and her research team from the University of California. There was a gift of a hot air balloon ride for Dr. Kimberly Wade, psychologist, who is best known for her experiments involving doctored images of hot air balloon rides. There's an album of exit latency silences from memory experiments conducted by Dr. James Ost. There's a replica of Jackie Kennedy's Chanel suit that she wore on the day that Kennedy was assassinated, made in collaboration with a Vietnamese tailor. There's a remote past-life regression reading by a psychic called Crystal, who's based in Dundee, for the experimental psychologist and leading memory researcher, Professor Giuliana Mazzoni. There's also a full deck of hand-painted reverse-colour cards. There's a collection of one-minute videos documenting a failed prophecy of the end of the world. And also a collection of 242 found images of UFO sightings from around the world, with all evidence of the UFOs removed. As well as touring these works, <laughs> I've got too much time on my hands. As well as touring these works, I've also made a number of site-specific pieces um, where I've responded to the history and locale of each touring venue. Works have included making a replica of a lost model boat by a Penzance model boat maker called Ted George. I've also curated a collection of unknown busts from the University of Edinburgh's art collection, and I've also created a series of photographs of damage done to the walls of the Freud Museum by previous art exhibitions. Now, I'll not say any more about these works, as hopefully most of you have had a chance to look at the exhibition at the museum or at Carol Fletcher or intending to do so. If you do have any questions, though, please do grab me during the coffee breaks or during lunch, and I'll be happy to answer them. The second strand of the False Memory Archive project as you may have heard of, is, is a collection of false or non-believed memories that have been submitted by the public at the um, touring exhibitions and also at the Welcome Collection and online at falsememoryarchive.com. And what I like about the archive is that it actually democratises the idea of a false memory. Instead of it being something that only happens to someone who's, say, been unwittingly or deliberately manipulated by a third party, it illustrates how actually all of us are probably susceptible to having everyday glitches in memory. 
The question, though, that I've had to ask throughout is what form the memorial to non-memory should take. And I'm continuing to uh, discover a number of different ideas. The installation of the FaceTime film in the exhibition room at the museum is the current public iteration of this challenge. So it seems apt for me to play a short five-minute extract of the film before I introduce you to our first speaker of the day, Fiona Gabbard. Yes. 
When I was five years old, I remember seeing E.T. in my mother's bedroom. As if he was actually there, looking at me. So I was like nine years old, and like 25 years ago, watching TV, and I saw this program about a woman who had delivered a monkey. So she was breastfeeding this little monkey on TV. I clearly remember being able to breathe underwater as a child. I remember breathing underwater as a child, as long as I took tiny little breaths. I remember being pushed into a pool by my older sister when I was a baby. It's weird, though, because my sister died when I was two years old. Can it be true? My memories? I remember biting into a mouse when I was about four as a child in Indonesia in order to make my brother be quiet. <laughs> I was sitting outside in the garden and I was making mud pies and he just would not shut up. And then this mouse ran by and I bit into it and blood filled my mouth, ran down my face. My brother and the rest of my family have assured me that this has never happened. So that's uh, Brian uh, Ferguson and Lucy Ellenson, um, two actors who were charged with the task of reciting uh, submissions from the False Memory Archive from memory. Um, and the whole film, whole film can be um, seen at the Freud Museum, and there'll be some more extracts later today. So this morning, uh, for the session this morning, I'd like to introduce you to some leading contemporary psychologists who have worked extensively on designing experiments that explore the fallibility of autobiographical memory, particularly when the participants are exposed to misleading information from an authority figure. One can trace the earliest forms of eyewitness, or perhaps you could describe them as false memory experiments, back to 1887 with S. John Davy and Richard Hodgson's interviews of witnesses who had experienced a faked seance. However, the last 20 to 30 years has seen an explosion of research in this area, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you in a minute Dr. Fiona Gabbett, who is here to provide a background um, for you for the difficult reasons behind this growth, and also to discuss with you further a number of the extraordinary experiments that explore the fallibility of autobiographical memory. Fiona is a reader in psychology at Goldsmiths University of London. She holds an MSc in social psychology and a PhD in applied psychology from the University of Aberdeen. She's interested in the strengths and weaknesses of human memory. She has an international reputation for her research in the fields of suggestibility of memory and evidence-based investigative interviewing, and her work has set the agenda for new directions in the field of applied memory and cognition. So please, without further ado, will you please welcome Dr. Fiona Gabbard. Um, that was a nice introduction, so thank you. But I also want to say thank you to you because this is um, a real passion of mine to look at human memory and also um, 
look at the suggestibility of memory and false memory, and I'm really pleased that we had time to all view um, some of the false memories that were acted out at the beginning there, because that perfectly sets the context um, of some of the things that I'll be talking about today. But um, I can't promise to be as humorous the whole time as, <laughs> as the opening talk was. In fact, I'm going to be starting off by, by talking about um, some of the reasons why um, psychology of the psychology of false memory and understanding how memory works and the reasons that people can be suggestible and can develop false memories actually have very serious implications as well. Um, but to, just to start off with, um, this is a fairly recent survey, um, and a fa fairly big survey in the US, um, phoning up random sample of, um, of the general public, and they found that 63% of people believe that human memory works like a video camera, accurately recording the events we see and hear so that we can review and inspect them later. And there are many other um, similar findings if we look back over similar surveys. So people really do have this belief that our memory is incredibly reliable, um, whereas years and years of research we now know that this, in fact, isn't true. So... Um, is our memory really this reliable? Well, our memories are pretty good on the whole, but they're certainly not as reliable as this quote, this statement makes out. Is it possible to develop a memory for something that didn't actually happen? Well, we now know that it is, in fact, possible. This can be on a range of things. It can be um, that we're suggestible about something very, very small and maybe inconsequential. A lot of my research looks at the suggestibility of memory, and I'm really just changing their memory for little details that are maybe important in a police investigation. For example, what did someone look like? What were they wearing? But um, they're just elements of a pre-existing memory. But we also know as psychologists that it is possible to have full-blown false memories, and we've had a really nice demonstration of that already. So how does this happen? Um, and I'll be touching on that throughout my talk and happy to answer questions as well. So I thought to, to put this in a more serious context, um, I'd start off with a case study. So this is George Franklin Sr. This was quite a landmark case at the time um, in California in 1990. So George Franklin um, stood trial for the murder of Susan Nason. So Susan was a friend of his daughter's when they were eight years old. So his daughter Eileen, um, when she was an adult, she actually said, oh, I remember my dad killed my eight-year-old friend at the time. She had actually repressed that memory throughout her life and then later remembered it as an adult and then went to the police. Um, she presented very convincing evidence. It was very detailed, very elaborate. And her father was found guilty of murder in the first degree. So this is a landmark case because it was the first time an American citizen had been um, found guilty of a, of a big crime, of murder, on the basis of repressed memory. Um, I can tell you now that six years later, George Franklin was actually released from prison. But nevertheless, at the time, this was um, a very important case, a lot of media attention, of course, but also it required a legal response too. And so there's a growing, there were growing numbers of people who were coming forward um, and they were claiming repressed memories themselves or they were at least claiming delayed allegations of abuse. So as adults said that something that had happened to them 
um, when they were younger. And so, of course, the, the courts and the legal profession had to take this seriously, and a lot of the rules changed, um, which led to an increase of, of cases going to court. And I'm making no comment on those cases um, from the little I know of of similar real-life cases, there's um, an awful lot of evidence to suggest that delayed allegations are completely true, and it's a very sensitive area. But, of course, we're talking about false memories here, so I'm going to be talking about the, the smaller percentage, perhaps, that are people um, making very serious allegations, but, in fact, this is a false memory. Um, the backlash to that was people who were claiming that these these memories of their daughters, of the people in their classrooms, were in fact untrue and false. There was no evidence for that. And they banded together and they formed support groups. And it's, like I said before, it's a very sensitive topic. If you look at some of the case studies, people's lives are really being um, torn apart by this. And so here's another case, Gary Ramona, another landmark case, again, in, in America, he was on trial for abusing his daughter Holly, who was 19 at the time of the case, when she was 5 to 8 years old. Holly was in therapy. She had sought therapy for bulimia and depression, and her therapist told her that 80% of bulimia cases were the result of being sexually abused as a child, after which she then reported that she did have memory of abuse, and, um, and this led to her father being um, taken to court. Um, Ramona actually did manage to successfully prosecute the therapist in this particular case. And again, it was a landmark case because it established a parent's right or a carer's right to sue therapists. And he was suing them for planting false memories through negligent therapeutic practice, which I think that we'll hear more about later today. He was awarded damages, but at the end of the day, his life was completely ruined. His, he hasn't got a relationship with his children. His wife left him. He was um, a very successful businessman. Everything went out of the window. Um, and so even though he won his case and received some damages, his life is never going to be the same again. So it's very important for scientific research to be done to really understand what's going on. So is it possible to implant memories? Um, and here we're talking about compelling, vivid memories where someone can remember an entire episodic event and stand up in court and, and claim that these things happened or claim that they've been abducted by aliens or claim that they've seen UFOs. Um, and there's plenty of examples now that suggest that there is. Um, and here I've referenced the false memory archive and um, if you haven't seen the rest of, of this footage, um, or read some of the false memories that people have submitted, then I suggest you do, because it's really fascinating. Um, but here's, here's another example from someone we all know, Hillary Clinton. I remember landing under sniper fire. There was supposed to be some kind of greeting ceremony at the airport, but instead we just ran with our heads down to get into vehicles to get to our base. This was when she was landing in Bosnia. In fact, this is a photo of the time. Nothing happened like that at all. She had time when she got out of the aeroplane to stop and greet people and kiss children and say hello to everybody. A complete false memory, which of course she was pulled up on. Um, and, um, but she claims that this, that, you know, this is what she remembered and she made a mistake and etc. So where do they come from? Well, memory works in a way, of course it isn't like a video recorder, but in fact it's our interpretations of 
events, its experiences, is all different part, uh, bits of information we get from various different sources that then get integrated into our basic memory. Um, so, for example, um, Hillary Clinton might well have a really good schema of what it might be like landing in Bosnia. An awful lot of people knew about the troubles in Bosnia, and so she incorporated some of that into her own experiences. Um, and Holly Ramona, who stood in court um, claiming that she had been abused by her father, well, these have been suggestions put to her by this particular therapist, and so she had motivation to really try and think, well, is this a cause, perhaps, of, of um, my bulimia and my depression? Um, and so remembering is a reconstructive process where we have all of this information from different sources and we can combine it in our episodic memory. Um, even if it's very important to us, it, we're prone to misremembering events. So it's not as if these are just trivial, inconsequential, um, non-central details. These can be really personally important for us and we're not immune to false memories. Can we distinguish between true and false memories? And again, there's been a lot of research because this would be very valuable if you can. But um, given what I've just told you about memory, um, our memories being this um, representation of, from different sources of information, it's very difficult to disentangle what came from different sources, what bits of information came from the therapist versus the newspaper reports versus what my friend told me versus what I remember myself. Everything becomes intertwined together and nothing's tagged with these nice little tags saying um, where the original sources were from. The only way we can do that is by really concentrating um, effortly focusing on our memory and looking at the qualitative parts of our memory. So, for example, um, we look at qualitative characteristics such as, well, what can we remember seeing? What can we remember hearing? What can we remember feeling at the time? What happened immediately before this event? What happened immediately afterwards? Um, do we have a vague um, intuition that we got this information because we were reading it or we were watching it or we experienced it ourselves? How quickly does this information come to memory? So if I was asked what I was doing last night and some aspect of that came up into my head very quickly, then I would be led to believe that this is um, a genuine memory. So genuine memories tend to have these aspects to it. You remember them quickly, you remember them quite boldly, they have a lot of supporting information, um, and so we say with a fair amount of confidence this has happened. And typically, imagined events um, are, don't have quite as much detail to them. Perhaps they don't have quite as much detail. Perhaps you also can't remember what happened immediately beforehand and immediately afterwards. So the more you actually think about it, the more you think, mm, I'm not actually sure if this happened. But again, we know... Um, you might all have false memories yourself. I know I certainly do. We know sometimes we can have all of this experience of, of retrieving what seems like a real memory. And, and sometimes you might know that it's false, but only through this process of kind of effortful um, deliberation over really concentrating on these qualities. So anything that makes it difficult to discriminate between something that might be false and might be true will then um, can 
turn into a false memory and lead us to be susceptible to false memories. So um, Holly Ramona probably had a, um, a quite an elaborate um, idea of what it happened. She had been speaking about this at length, perhaps over years with a therapist, and, um, and had developed... Um, quite an elaborate memory, which then she had grown to believe. And the same with the um, videos that we saw earlier, with people really having quite a lot of information, fooling them to think it's a memory, even though they know that perhaps it's not. Um, so how have psychologists looked at this? Um, and I've just picked out a few a few studies just to show you how you can try and control for all of this and try and study it in a lab. So here's quite an early study. Um, these series of studies are called crashing memory studies because it started off with um, looking at people's memories for a plane that crashed into a block of flats in Amsterdam. Um, quite a major disaster with um, over 50 people who lost their lives. And a little while afterwards, the... Um, researchers went out and they said to members of the public, well, can you actually remember this happened? Do you remember seeing the footage of this? And of course there was no footage of this at all. There was newspaper reports of the aftermath, but there was no video footage of the actual crash. Um, but in fact, out of the 193 um, general public, 66% of them claimed to have seen this video footage of the particular crash. Um, there are there are high points and, and maybe some limitations of this particular study. So, um, for example, we can't be sure that the newspaper did a reconstruction of this event, for example. But people have taken into account these limitations and they've replicated this kind of um, study, psychological study, to show that, in fact, it really is quite a consistent event. Um, and so people um, always... Um, find it a little bit macabre because people, as soon as there's a, an awful thing that's happened, people rush out and interview the public about it. So the car crash with Princess Diana, there was no footage of the crash, but 44% of people said they remember seeing it. The first plane to strike the World Trade Center, the Estonia ferry sinking, etc. It's very easy to ask people, have they seen something that as psychologists and the researchers know that they haven't seen because there is no footage available, controlling for limitations, um, such as if there's any replica footage. And um, people won't o only say, yes, I've seen them, but um, they will elaborate. They will talk about the direction things of, of um, have sunk or have hit buildings um, and, and really come up with something that sounds very convincing as a proper memory. There's also been an awful lot of research where where grown adults have been suggested certain things that have happened to them in childhood. And again, it's relatively easy to do so. So, for example, the very famous example of Elizabeth Loftus and people convincing people that they've been lost in a shopping mall um, or spilling punch over a bride at a wedding. Um, slightly more serious things that you might think that if you're an adult, you are bound to have remembered um, whether that did happen or not. But we, but um, researchers um, have managed to tell people that um, they were attacked as an animal or they were hospitalised overnight. Um, so all all of these things, the researchers generally concluded that with such things such as um, suggestion, 
suggesting to an adult that something might have happened to them as a child, and also things such as imagination, encouraging them to imagine this. Well, okay, so if you can't remember it now, but, you know, your mum said it did happen to you, and so go away and think about it, and I'll ask you about it next week. These kinds of um, studies using these kinds of techniques have shown that it that you can plant a seed and it can grow into uh, an embellished false memory for an entire episodic event. Here's um, a study um, that I'll talk to you about in a minute that looks at Im- what's called imagine inf- imagination inflation in a bit more detail. And um, Ali said that you had had photos from Kim Wade, and this is um, Kim Wade's study that I'm going to be talking about, about um, going up in a hot air balloon. And um, the reason some researchers focus on this imagination, the aspect um, of imagination, is because by going away and thinking that, did this happen to me, and and really um, imagining that it might, something might have happened to you, it gives people subjective confidence that perhaps it does, it did happen to them. And it makes that memory more accessible. So the first time you say, have you ever been up in a hot air balloon, you might say no within a matter of seconds. But if you've thought about it for a number of times, um, then somebody asking you that same question, well, that idea will immediately come into your head. Because it's more accessible, it tricks you into thinking it's a real memory. But also the act of imagination, it gives it detail, it gives it context, it gives it all this extra bits of information that later... Um, fools you into thinking that it's an actual memory. Um, So here's Kim's study. 20 people were interviewed three times over a two-week period about some true events and one false event. And this was a big elaborate study involving the um, parents of the participants that were taking part. They made sure that these things either had or happened or hadn't happened to them when they were a child. They asked for family photos, so they were able to show them some photos and say, do you remember this happening? And, of course, some of them were true. But with the false event, um, the researchers were able to establish that none of their participants had been up in a hot air balloon. Nevertheless, they got a photo of when the child was very young, and they doctored it with Photoshop and put them in a hot air balloon. And so they showed them these photos and said, okay, well, here's another one of you when you were young. You know, do you remember this happening? Um, So at first, here's just an example. And again, tell me as much as you can recall about this event, the hot air balloon, without leaving anything out. Um, No, never actually thought I'd been in a hot air balloon. So there we go. You can't remember anything about this event? No, it is me, no memory whatsoever. If you want to take the next few minutes and concentrate on getting a memory back, just something about the event. No, yeah, honestly, no, I can't. It's really annoying. So this person is now interviewed um, again after a week um, and also told to, to go home, look at the photos, and just try and remember what you can. So this is their last interview, third one. Same again, tell me everything you, you can recall about this event without leaving anything out. I'm just trying to work out how old my sister was. I'm trying to get the exact um, when it happened. I'm still pretty certain it occurred when I was in Form 1, 6th grade, and um, the local school there, basically for $10 or something, you could go up in a hot air balloon, go up about 20-odd metres. It would have been a Saturday. I think we 
we were with, yeah, parents. No, it wasn't, not my grandmother. Not certain who any of the other people are there. I'm pretty certain my mum is down on the ground taking the photo. So really quite, quite elaborate. And this is only two interviews later and an instruction to go home and think about something. Um, we also know, though, that not only um, we, we now understand how memory works, how, how we define what is true memory or a f- try to define what is a false memory um, by looking at the quality qualities of these memories and running studies to show, to prove that our theories are correct and we can do this. Um, but there's also been a lot of research in looking at, well, is there a process then of developing false memories? And are there any kind of boundaries perhaps to this event? And Juliana Mazzoni and colleagues has done a lot of very interesting research in this particular area. And at the conclusion of it has said that there's, um, most of the time there's this three-stage process. So First of all, someone's got to believe something is at least plausible. Um, It might have happened to them. They must then come to believe that it is likely that they experienced the event. So they've got to develop a belief that this um, might, might have actually happened to them. It could have happened to them. And then later they must make a source monitoring er error. And so the more they believe that it, that it might have happened to them, Excuse me. The more they might start elaborating and thinking back, and um, and this, what started out, out as something that was a suggestion that might be plausible, is now growing arms and legs. Um, but then later, a source monitoring error is something where you forget the source of of the information. So you forget that the therapist suggested this, or Hillary Clinton forgot that. Perhaps all of the knowledge she had about Bosnia was through reading newspaper reports. Instead, everything is just bundled up into your episodic memory. And if you can't remember the source, and we now know as well as psychologists that people remember the source of information faster than they remember the elements of information, then it can start becoming, you know, a real problem. Well, a real problem if you work like I do in legal psychology. Perhaps less of a problem if you have humorous events that we saw earlier about um, about um, other people, you know, false memories about how, what they've remembered from their particular childhood. Um, I'm lucky in that my I have two false memories myself. One is my parents' car driving me around wherever I wanted to go, which just, <laughs> I don't live in the future, that just couldn't have happened. And, um, and another one of going to SeaWorld and, and being splashed over. And I think I must have heard so many stories from friends of mine that went to SeaWorld. So, and my parents point blank said, no, we, we have never taken you to SeaWorld. And I haven't been with a friend. So, um, so mine are very harmless and really quite nice, <laughs> false memories. But um, you can see how it can be um, incredibly traumatic and, um, and horrendous examples of false memories. So, important theoretical and applied issues. Theoretical because, as psychologists, we want to know how memory works, and applied because this touches on real life as well. Um, there's reasonable evidence that people can develop false beliefs about things that, cannot, that didn't happen, and a lot of evidence of that. Um, some evidence as well that people develop memories, full-blown false memories for things that didn't happen, based perhaps on their false beliefs. And these are all related, so beliefs can develop into memories um, once the original suggestion, the original source of information has been forgotten. And I know that we've got future talks that are going to expand on some of these issues quite a lot, so I will leave it there. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Fiona. That, that was really interesting. Um, have we got any questions to start off with? We'll just bring the um, mic over to you. Right, we'll go to the back first and sort of work our way down to the front. Hi, I'd just like to know, what, what is the distinction that you draw between a belief and a memory? So there's some research that will, um, that will um, break it down when they're questioning people about something that they've just suggested to them, for, for example. So um, perhaps getting lost in a shopping mall, for, for a famous example. And um, the more recent research has tried to look at the process that's involved in developing a false memory. And um, they found that some people will um, have a belief where they say, well, I'm sure it must have happened to me. But in fact, if you ask them to elaborate on it, they won't be able to. And they'll say, well, I think it did happen to me, but I can't really remember what happened. And, and if you're interested in false memory research then you really want to be able to demonstrate that people have, have gone just, not from being able to convince something, someone that something happened to them, but we want to see how that memory has developed and been elaborated on to really prove that people believe that's a personal memory. And through breaking it down into questions such as, well, is it plausible this happened to you? Do you, be, do you believe this happened to you? Can you tell me more about what happened to you? We're able to map the process, and, and so we're pretty confident um, now that in order to develop a full-blown false memory is preceded by having that belief. Thanks. Okay, next question. Just in the... um, when implanting false memories and going through that process, are there certain elements that are more successful than others, such as photos or um, leading questions? Is there a more significant element? Um, there's some recent research by, um, by uh, Marianne Gary and her research group in New Zealand, and they're very strong advocates that it's far easier to implant a memory if there is um, accompanying photos. And in fact, Kim Wade used to work with Marianne Gary looking at the doctored photographs, and a lot of Marianne's research now is looking at how easy it is to get people to believe things just by having an accompanying image. And I, I think um, the reason for that is because you've almost helped them along the way a little bit by giving them this extra bit of information. It's not just a verbal suggestion, but suddenly they've got um, a picture that might spark off, something that they can build on. So, yeah, um, I think um, much, much easier if you give them more information and more visual stimulus. Yeah, just, just, to, just to add to that, actually, there was a very interesting study by um, an online uh, magazine called Slate, um, which is based in the States, and they presented two doctored photographs um, of kind of highly charged political encounters, one being um, Obama meeting Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, shaking his hand, and the other one was George Bush, um, with a, it was with a baseball player, wasn't he, I think, in his... In his, in his SUV, and, but it was during Hurricane Katrina, and he's just there having a, having a laugh, basically, and so lo looking kind of negligent. And then put it out to the readership of Slate, um, which is 
extensive, and it was kind of one of the biggest, ended up being one of the biggest experiments of its type, of its type. and it was just very interesting that people, there was a very, very strong, uh, very high minority, I think, maybe it was, it was around about 50%, I can't remember the exact details, but um, lots of people reported seeing uh, both photographs, and very interestingly, it went along political lines, so if you were mm, yeah. a Republican, you remembered Obama shaking hands with Ahmadinejad, and if you were a Democrat, you remembered Bush being negligent with his, mm. with his baseball yeah. star. So that was a really interesting uh, experiment, I think, around mm. doctor photography, and kind of took what uh, has taken what, what Wade has been doing in, in the lab for, for a number of years, and now we're very fortunate with new technology that you can actually conduct, sort yeah. of, it's, it's a horrible term, but citizen science kind mm. of, yeah. to, to Test these hypotheses. So it's mm. just thought that was an interesting, um, interesting example. Yeah, yeah, um, further questions? Just down the front here. Uh, there's one. One actually. We'll go down to the front first because you've had, had your hand up for a while. So we'll just go down to the front here, and then Sharon, and then we'll come back to you. I was uh, just wondering whether the research looked at, at what actually you've just brought up. This question of what the interest is in the person in having that memory be actually true? And did you, did you sort of, did any of the research look into that? Of, um... Of, well, how, how beneficial it might be to a person for something to have been true, in whatever way? Yes, lots of people have, have looked at people's um, motivations, perhaps, for developing a false memory Chris, are you going to be speaking a little bit more about this later? So, for example, um, um, in a in a therapy situation, um, we know that people are very motivated to want to get better. And so if there is negligent um, practice and a suggestion has been made, then people are very motivated to build upon that. Um, and we know um, as well that... With with different types of um, of events, um, people perhaps the the we, there's so many ethical um, bounds, of course, with implanting false memories, and in psychology, it's very difficult to implant anything too traumatic. Um, but there have been things like um, people receiving. Um, reptile enemas when they were a child or some particular awful thing where they had to go to hospital or being bitten by a dog. So we, so we try to, to look at differences between something that might be a positive event, something that might be a negative event. And people are more motivated to, um, to develop false memories of positive events and we find that they do. And I think also it goes back to the plausibility as well. And so something that's slightly more negative or, or more unusual or more shocking, people have a, an idea of, well, that just wouldn't have happened to me. And and so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but people have tried to, to look at the motivations and the different boundaries of the effect by by having positive, negative, shocking, mundane events and and looking at the type of people who will go on to develop false memories. Sure. Um, I have two questions. I'm not sure if the first one is a question, but you said we're all prone to misremember events, and then even when these events are significant and personally relevant to us, and I would suggest that it might be especially when they are significant yeah, development yeah. rather than even, so I'm not quite sure of the question. And then I want to ask, what happens when in the research a memory is implanted 
and then it's revealed as being false. Does that implanted memory still persist in some way? And is there some loss or trauma that occurs subsequently? Trauma as in? The the loss of an event that was regained or invented. Um, One of the ways of misremembering is trying to make sense of the world. Yeah, um, and so um, I think in, in answering very quickly to your first comment, I think the reason I put that statement in is because some people think, oh, well, it wouldn't happen to me. You know, my memories are, are authentic. Um, and in terms of if, peop- if it's revealed that um, it's um, an implanted me- memory um, and people have genuinely developed a false memory, they were always, they might be able to say, uh, as in some of the non-believed false memories that, um, that we had an example of earlier, people know, perhaps they've been told that it can't possibly be a real memory, and yet there's no way of going back, you know, now you've developed a false memory. And in fact, there's some really nice um, examples, other examples on YouTube with um, children who have maybe been suggested to them that they've had their finger caught in a mouse trap or something. And then the, the dad has sat down at length with the little boy and said, you know, it, it didn't really happen, we don't have a mouse trap, all of these things. And then afterwards the researcher goes in and says, but your dad told you it didn't happen. And the little boy is saying, but it really did happen, I remember <laughs> it happening. You know, And, um, and so it, once you have that memory, it's a memory, you might be able to justify it and say, I, it's not real, but you'll have that particular memory. And um, people are... Um, I'm not sure how best to answer your, your, your second question, but... Um, but people are motivated to, to um, interpret things in different ways. And so, for example, we know a lot of research on depression that people tend to interpret something that had just happened negatively, and that can, um, that can cause the, the depression to continue. Um, and, of course, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy is trying to get people to look at um, different ways to interpret a particular event. Um, on the other extreme, there are people who interpret everything very, very positively. And so it's very difficult to know, well, what is the actual reality of what happened? But there's other famous studies as, as well that have looked at a ver- someone remembering a very nice event of a birthday party, and then their mum said, but you hated that birthday party. You cried all the way through. Your friend didn't come. And, and it's like from, for the rest of their life they're going to remember that that isn't their, wasn't their happy birthday party. So it does have implications think, for the way you live your life. I think something really interesting about like portrayal of a non-believing mm. memory and, and, and what happens to it what does it, does, does it look different when you imagine it how, how does it how does it reconstruct itself after you know it it's not yeah. actually true um, and I think just sort of purely anecdotally in terms of a lot of the, the um, submissions to the archive that there are some where it's clearly it's, 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 it's amusing you know it's kind of funny to find out that that, that you used to think this and that it's no longer the case. But there is a kind of, there's often there are ones which have a kind of sense of loss or a melancholy about them, particularly ones which um, about, there's so many there about um, thinking that you used to be able to fly. And there's this real <laughs> melancholy in all of those submissions. There's about 15, 20 of them in total, of when, you know, there's sudden realisation when they became teenagers or as, as adults that, of course I and, and, and there, there is a kind of loss, which is really interesting, which comes with the, the non-belief, I guess, of, 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 a, of a particular memory. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating area. Um, 
Uh, there was a question, I think, for the next one was here. It's sort of been asked, because I was wondering about what happens when that false memory is. I was wondering what happens when that false memory is dissolved. Uh, but I, and you've talked about that. But I also wondered, um, in, in your experience, are there, are there any differences, do you think, in the way people tell memories that are perhaps, I should say, what is true, really, but that they are actually true and what are false? I think if you've got a genuine um, false memory that is elaborate and has an awful lot of information to it, then it's very, very difficult to, to, they're incredibly convincing. You would, you would look at footage and you would think that that person is, is telling the truth. Um, there are sometimes ways where you might be able to say to someone, um, encourage them to be really effortful in their process of, of determining whether it really did happen. So, for example, like the supporting memories, like, well, what happened immediately before? Who else were you with at that time? What did you do afterwards? You know, and then, you know, and possibly see whether people have, who can tell you the whole story or whether it seems to be an isolated memory. But, yeah, it's very, it's very difficult. Um, but yeah, you, you can. The only way you can really do it is to ask people to really concentrate on the qualities associated with that particular memory. It's a real, real conundrum because I guess through that process as well, there's a possibility for further confabulation and and further well, of course, yeah, yeah, you want to describe it, yeah. But, um, uh, okay, who was next? I think actually, as you're sitting next to, to, to <laughs> let's, let's just go there. So, so we've got three more questions, and then we'll we'll break for coffee. Is there any? Um, Research on um, individual differences in people who are prone to have false memories and those that are personality variables, <laughs> things like that. That's a good question, and I'm not. I don't know if any of the other speakers can yeah, help me out. Yeah, yeah, please. Yes, there is. Um, this is Chris French. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, particularly things like um, fantasy proneness. Um, yeah, it's, certain type of personality that has often very, very creative people, got a very, very rich fantasy life. Um, and in, in terms of the kind of framework that Fiona's presented there, actually, anything that makes it more difficult to decide between is this something that really did happen or is it just something that I imagined is going to be making you more susceptible to having a false memory. So if you have no imagination whatsoever, like me, <laughs> um, but obviously if you've got a very rich and vivid imagination, then when you've imagined something, uh, subsequently when you are asked, did that ever happen to you, you remember imagining it, and it's a very, it's a very vivid image that then comes to mind, and you're more likely to say, yes, it really did. So things like fantasy proneness, things like dissociativity, the uh, tendency to go into mildly altered states of consciousness. I mean, rather than giving a technical description, I found it easy to say these are the kinds of people that my grandma would have described as being away with the fairies. Okay, but that kind of person... Uh, people who are hypnotically uh, suggestible, um, all these things tend to intercorrelate anyway, as you might imagine, um, and they also seem to correlate with susceptibility to false memories using you know, different kinds of paradigms. So, so yes, there is. Perfect. Thanks, Chris. Okay, and then the last one. I just wanted to ask if we know anything about the biological basis of false memories, because some people may, you know, in clinical with a clinical condition or just, you know, normal people, they might just have a false memory or just um, 
change the memories over time. So do we know how this happens biologically in the brain and connections? Of, uh... Again, I, if someone's got a better answer than me, it would, it would be great on this. From what I know um, about the studies that have um, tried to determine um, between true and false memories, um, with brain scans, for example, they haven't been able to tell a difference. And I think that's because of the way we know that memory works. We really are um, retrieving memories in the same way. And even though it's a false memory, we're retrieving it in the same way. So we're using our brain in a, in a similar way. And there's nothing that could flag up that this didn't particularly, this particular memory didn't happen and this particular memory did happen. Has anyone got any um, advances on that, Chris, with any research that you... Well, well I, mean, I, think, I, mean, I think generally what you've said yeah. is absolutely true. There are some studies I'm, I'm familiar with using kind of specific, very well-controlled experimental paradigms where, for example, um, the kind of thing people might do is to uh, have a first phase of the study where you either present pictures, say of an apple, a cave, a tree, so on and so forth, or the word flashes up in which case the subject is told they must Im imagine that item. Uh, then there's a second phase where you ask people, first of all, was this stimulus presented at all? And if so, was it actually presented as a picture or as a word? And what you'll find, again, is that some people, when they're asked to imagine something, again, particularly if you've got a very good imagination, you subsequently think it was actually presented as a picture, even though, in fact, it was presented as a word. So it's a very kind of simple kind of false memory, but it is a false memory. What you can do in that kind of study is then look at things like uh, EEG activity or whatever else it may be and see in that second phase, is there a difference in brain activity for the false things that are falsely recognised as having been presented as pictures versus the things that really were. Um, and you get very, very kind of... It might be statistically significant differences, but they're very subtle and it wouldn't be enough for you to be able to then say for a particular individual case, is this a true or false memory? But there might be kind of group differences between the two sets of stimuli. But they're very, very small and in general couldn't be used in any you know, certainly couldn't yeah. be used in a legal context to try and decide yeah. is this a real memory or a false and, memory. And again, possibly a difference between imagining you had seen an apple versus an entire false blown episodic oh, memory that, that really so, does have like arms and legs and yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean I, I think that's really quite intriguing that the brain imaging hasn't been able to necessarily identify what is a true or a false <laughs> memory. I think that's really kind of telling um, okay. Uh, yes, yes, of course. I think we've we were due to break at quarter past eleven, but let's Fiona's uh, doing brilliantly. So let's just have that one last question and one more here. And then I'll have a big cup of coffee. I just was thinking, just in this case, if there is no evidence to support that, that people actually something happens in the brain, they have imagined it. Because if you have imagined it or dreamt it in the past, so you should recall it, so there should be some activity. Do you think there might be some kind of connection with uh, experiments for conformity, like you have heard, because all of these are social events, most of the one, most of the events they have uh, used for the experimental designs. There might be some kind of, I've heard something, most of the people support of that, so this might be true, so I have to support it because other people do. So do you think there might be some kind of connection? I think, um... They, it's an entirely different thing um, saying that um, other people say it's true so I'm just going to go along with them. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a, 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 
believed yet false memory. I think that is more to do with conformity. And maybe it makes sense, so maybe it's rational, because it's very common to think irrationally about events we don't know anything or we can't recall, so maybe well, we're ashamed to admit it, so we might admit that, yes, it's fine, sounds good, maybe, I don't know. In that remember. case, that would be another form of suggestion. So a lot of my research is actually looking at what's called memory conformity, and so... Um, people talking together about something that they've seen and I'll look at how they influence one another's memories for what they've seen. So interview them independently and they'll tell you roughly the same thing of what they saw but it will have their own idiosyncratic memories along with it. Ask them to speak to each other first and then split them up and tell you what happened. Their memories are very similar and we, and we run it as well so that perhaps one person sees a couple of things the other person couldn't have seen and vice versa and you know that the person incorporates these additional bits of information into their own memory and we also know that um, people will sometimes again we use a, a staged process so first of all um, we allow them to freely report everything they remember and they might remember a couple of details that were suggested to them we then go on and say okay well what do you actually, um, you know, you've reported this, do you remember seeing it yourself or hearing about it or both? And maybe some people say um, both, you know, or something because they believe their friend as well, but then they think they've seen it. Some people will say, I remember it was suggested to me by my friend. But again, you have the, out of those people, you have the smaller sample who will genuinely say, yeah, I remember it, and then perhaps elaborate on it. So there's all different ways of having that initial spark of um, the suggestion. And if, and again, you're saying, well, may, it's, you know, it starts off being conformity, but already you're starting to think, well, maybe it's plausible, and, you know, and then over time, these things don't always happen immediately. In fact, it's far easier to get false memory effects over time. And so all that needs is to start off as you suggested. Fascinating. And the last one here. <laughs> um, in order to recover a memory, it must have been repressed in the first place. Um, so I was wondering if there was any research about how many, you know, to, about the extent of repression of, of, uh, of memories, particularly traumatic ones. For example, if I think about the Jimmy Savile case, I wonder, I wonder, I mean, one, one hears people coming along and saying, yes, I haven't thought about this for 50 years. Um, but it's, it would be interesting to know, you know, what the extent of complete repression is, because that relates to the, the effect of being able to recover it afterwards. Yeah, okay, and again, I'm being... Um the only reason I'm hesitating in answering your question is because I know that you're doing a talk this afternoon on um, traumatic yeah, memories. And yeah, and so that's an ideal time yes, to ask really that question really with Chris. Point. But it's a very interesting point. Yeah. Right. Well, thanks again to Fiona. I think Thank I deserve a round of applause.